0: Hello, and welcome to Decision Points, the story of key moments in the history of the U.S.-Israel relationship. My name is David Makovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. On today's episode, we will discuss the growth of Israel's high-tech sector and its impact on U.S.-Israel relations. Israel's history has proven that necessity truly is the mother of invention. Much of the state's technological innovation since its founding in 1948, and even before statehood, stem from its unique history, geography, and culture. Chutzpah, or audacity in Hebrew, is often credited for Israel's status as a startup powerhouse. Many societal environmental challenges in Israel's early days, such as the need to sustain agriculture in the desert, forced Israel's highly educated populace to innovate. The mass migration of Soviet Jews in the late 1980s and early 1990s brought many scientists to Israel. Once these immigrants became more integrated into Israeli society, they and subsequent generations began to revolutionize the economy. The modern Israeli high-tech boom was born. The constant threat of attack by its neighbors in the first several decades of statehood necessitated the Israeli military to develop new military technologies. While the U.S. has been a strong and at times the only military ally for Israel for decades, the Zionist ethos of self-reliance kept Israel at the front end of technological change. In recent decades, the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, has continued to serve as a national incubator for Israel's startup culture. Unit 8200, Israel's equivalent of the National Security Agency, or NSA, is a highly desired assignment among young soldiers. Israel's foes in recent decades have largely been non-state actors, many of which are supported by Iran, who boast of their abilities to hit Israeli cities. This has spurred Israel to create missile defense systems like Iron Dome, David's Sling, and Arrow, in cooperation with the United States.
1: The United States and Israel have deep ties on this program. Of the 10 Iron Dome batteries that have been fielded, the United States provided the funding for eight of them. And I'm glad we have, because this system has saved innocent lives.
0: Several memoranda of understanding, or MOUs as the acronym is known, guarantee military aid have been signed between the United States and Israel. The most recent one, concluded by the Obama administration in 2016, include $38 billion in aid over 10 years, including $5 billion for missile defense technology and funding for the advanced F-35 fighter jet. In addition, strong relationships between military research institutes and multiple emergency congressional allocations of high-tech military hardware in times of war have strengthened the U.S.-Israel relationship. The peak of the peace process in the 1990s further spurred investment and development, bringing billions of dollars in foreign investment. This growth in investment has been like rocket fuel to Israel's still fledgling venture capital industry at the time. Within the private sector, there have been over 350 multinational corporations based in the U.S., as well as, if you add them all together, 500 multinationals from 35 different countries all represent in Israel. Intel, Google, Microsoft, IBM, HP, Apple, and many others have R&D operations in Israel. IBM's first PC in the 1980s was based on a microprocessor invented at Intel's Israel base. Google co-founder Sergey Brin has said, quote, Israel's a pioneer in research and development in Google, and we have great appreciation for Israeli developers, end quote. Billions of dollars in venture capital have been invested in Israel's startups by American and other foreign companies. Investment in Israeli cybersecurity exceeded over a billion dollars in 2018 alone, approximately 20% of worldwide cybersecurity investment. This has created an exit culture in which the goal of startup companies in Israel is to be purchased by large foreign companies. The metropolitan area along Israel's central coast has such a high concentration of high-tech startups that it has been nicknamed Silicon Wadi, of course, a reference to the Silicon Valley. Both United Airlines and Al Al fly the lucrative Tel Aviv to San Francisco route multiple times a week, connecting these two technological epicenters. All these factors have shot Israel to the top of many economic indices. In 2018, Israel had the 21st highest GDP per capita, according to the International Monetary Fund, ahead of Japan. In 2019, the UN's World Intellectual Property Organization ranked Israel as number 10 in terms of innovation on its Global Innovation Index. Our guests today are Dan Sinor and Ambassador Dan Shapiro. Sinor is the co-author with Saul Singer of the bestseller Startup Nation, The Story of Israel's Economic Miracle. It has now been translated into 30 languages. Dan is an adjunct fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a leading expert on Israeli high tech and business sectors. Dan Shapiro served as the U.S. ambassador to Israel from July 2011 to January 2017. He's also served in various other governmental roles, including senior director for the Mideast and North Africa. At the National Security Council at the White House, as well as having numerous advisory positions in the U.S. Congress. He's currently a distinguished fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. To both Dan's, thank you very much for coming. Dan Senor, I'll start with you. Tell us a sense of the role that technology has played in the U.S. Israel relationship, and at what point did U.S. companies recognize the growth and power of the Israeli high tech sector?
1: Well, if you look at the origin of the growth of the Israeli tech scene. sort of almost been like a revolution, but the first stages of it were in the early 70s, actually. So there was a guy named Dov Froman, who's one of the most fascinating characters in the Israeli high-tech innovation economic history story. Dov Froman was Israeli, Holocaust survivor, grew up in Israel, served in the IDF, moved to the U.S. to get his Ph.D. in electrical engineering, wound up working for a company in Silicon Valley called Fairchild Semiconductor. At Fairchild Semiconductor, he got to meet the founders of what would be Intel. So then he was one of the first employees of Intel, working for Andy Grove and his early founding team. And they needed engineers. They were desperate to hire engineers. You know, this is before Silicon Valley was Silicon Valley. And Dove Froman went to the leadership of Intel and says, I got an idea. You want talented engineers, we have a shortage of engineers, we can find them in Israel. There's all this technological talent in Israel. They're low-priced, they're scrappy, they're hungry, and no one's going there. So they greenlit Dove to go set up shop in Israel. The only problem was, this was 1973. Just when Intel was about to launch Dove into Israel, there was the Yom Kippur War. And obviously, they put everything on hold, but soon after the Yom Kippur War, they greenlit him again to go set up shop there today. Intel is the largest private sector employer in israel all right it's the second largest employer in the country after the government. So back then, they were one of the first companies to set up shop from the u s and then so and you had kind of a slow process through the balance of the seventies eighties, and in the nineties, you started to have multinational companies look at Israeli startups for acquisitions. The first big startup that got the most attention was ICQ, which was you know the first instant messaging company started in Tel Aviv in a garage by a few high school students. They sold that company to AOL in the mid-'90s for about $400 million cash, and that lit up instant news buzz throughout Israel. Suddenly, every kid in a basement with any technological talent, Israel wanted to build their own startup. And then you start to see all these startups starting to get lit up. And there were a number of other factors that I can walk through that contributed to this lighting up of the tech scene. And that's when, I'd say in the mid-90s is when the American tech community started to really pay attention to what was going on in Israel and start to see Israel as a place that you could set up shop for an R&D center or an acquire an Israeli startup. It used to be, it was a standout moment if you went into Israel, sort of in the 90s and the early 2000s. All the big names were there, but it was just there were only a handful of big names back then. Today, you stand out if you're not there. So what's striking is virtually every American tech company with any kind of scale is in Israel. And even more interesting, which is one of the more current trends we're seeing, is it's not just American tech companies, big American companies like the big auto companies, right? Like the the leadership of GM and Ford say the most important city they are in outside of Detroit is Tel Aviv. Right? You have food companies like Coca-Cola. You have just non-tech consumer companies like consumer product companies like Procter and Gamble. All these companies, Walmart. So it's the big tech companies and then it's the big American non-tech companies who realize for a whole range of reasons, if they want to use technology to give them a comparative advantage, they need to be in Israel, and they're relying on Israel. So if you take the auto companies, the U.S. auto companies, which have been quietly setting up shop in Israel, they believe that the future of the automobile and the future of innovation in the automobile is the automobile as a communications device. There's always talk about the driverless car or the semi-autonomous vehicle. All of that is about how vehicles communicate, communicate with other cars, communicate with the road, communicate with pedestrians. It's all about communications. And Israel's a leader in— technology, communications technology, visualization technology.
0: Just to give a sense of the startup culture, Dan Sinor, what really characterizes that startup culture?
1: Here's what's unique about the Israeli startup culture in terms of the diversity of Israel. You have over 70 nationalities represented in Israel. Two out of every three Israelis are an immigrant, the child of an immigrant, or the grandchild of an immigrant. You have these communities that come to Israel from around the world And when they come to Israel, they maintain some connective tissue to the places they came from. All these people are interacting with each other, with all these different cultures that they come from, and they're maintaining connection to these communities around the world, which in a globalized economy is extremely important. So that's a unique feature of Israel. Secondly, it is the most informal, anti hierarchical business culture in the world. Now, part of this flows from the military because the Israeli military is one of the least hierarchical militaries. It's not to say that junior people don't have to accept orders from their commanders or they can defy their commanders. It's, It's not that. It's to say that there's a culture in the IDF of real open debate, real articulation of disagreement, even with superiors. Again, not defying them, not ignoring them, but challenging and debating them. Lots of internal discussion, lots of deconstructing, You know, operations that took place or exercises that took place, what went wrong, what went right, who's to blame, how do we fix it in the future? So, that informality and that sort of anti hierarchical culture, because most Israelis go through that experience at a key formative stage in their lives, which is after high school, before they do anything professionally, before they go to university, so like 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, they go through that. It's like a crucible leadership experience. And then they go into the tech community. So it's not the other way around. They go into the tech community after they've done this, and so it hardwires them for this very anti-hierarchical, informal, debate-oriented, some would say overly argumentative culture. And you have the CEOs, like Eric Schmidt from Google said to us, former CEO of Google, said you put the average Israeli up against his or her 25-year-old peer anywhere in the world, the Israelis' openness to debate and disagreement and open-mindedness and problem-solving is unmatched in the world. One of the early executives at Intel said, when we interviewed him for Startup Nation, he said he went to Israel for one of the first times to visit their operation there at the time been flourishing. This is, uh, I think, in the 90s. And he walked by a conference room and he overheard a meeting in a conference room in their office in Israel. And there's yelling and screaming, and he was like horrified. What could possibly be going on here? And then one of the Israeli Intel employees walked out of the conference room, and this executive who was there from Santa Clara, California, said, is, is everything okay? Is everything okay? And the Israeli says, absolutely. We just wrapped up a very productive meeting. That's just the norm there. And it's jarring. I think it was initially jarring for American companies that were coming to do business in Israel. But over time, they've actually come to appreciate the lack of formality and the sort of non-defensiveness with which people receive feedback, challenging of ideas, and debate. Lastly, I would say in management jargon and literature, there's this tendency to overstate the power of a team mentality in business management, and it tends to often be sort of overwrought and kind of can be glib at times. But I do think there's something interesting going on in Israel, which is when you finish high school, the first experience, as I said earlier, is for most Israelis is to go into the military. The whole military experience and your success in the military is a team-based experience. You will only be as effective and successful as your team is. And that unit you're in, you not only serve for those few years, and if you go on and to be trained to be an officer, you go into one of the elite units like 8200 or Talpiot or 9900, then that could be even a longer experience, seven, 10 years. But at some point, you leave, most leave. And then they're in miluim in reserves, and they go back every year, could be a couple times a year, with this unit, many of whom they served with when they eighteen, 18, 19, and 20, and they do this until they're like in their 40s. So when they go into a startup, or Google, or Apple, or pick your one of the hundreds of companies that have set up R&D centers in Israel, when they hire Israelis, they are hiring young people who are hardwired to do really creative unconstrained problem solving, and people who thrive in a team environment and actually measure their success as based on how they perform as a team. And that is an outlier in the global innovation economy.
0: Let me go to Dan Shapiro here. Having been the ambassador in Israel for many years, Dan, could you say about from your vantage point, what was the role of high tech in deepening U.S.-Israel relations?
2: Traditionally, we've talked about The U.S.-Israel relationship as being based on two pillars, the common interests, the security challenges that we both face that emanate from the Middle East, and the common interests of our societies, or the common values, rather, of our societies as two democracies. Those two pillars are still very present, but I believe the economic partnership, which is so much based in this high-tech phenomenon in Israel has really risen to be a third pillar alongside the other two. And I think, as Dan has already mentioned, now we're seeing the same phenomenon spread across many, many other sectors of the economy. So it's no longer just the technology companies. It's every company nowadays is a technology company. And so it's not just IT technologies either. It's in the medical field and fintech and ad tech and water tech and transportation and energy, clean energy technologies. So that's one of the evolutions of this relationship. And it's driven a significant growth in the U.S.-Israel trade relationship overall that more and more American companies across every possible sector are basing significant parts of their R&D operations in Israel. And then another turn of the wheel has been after the original Startup Nation phenomenon, sort of uh, sometimes it was even criticized or at least it was critiqued by saying, you know, mostly what you see is you see Israeli entrepreneurs create a startup and at kind of the first opportunity when someone is prepared to you know, write them a, a significant check, they will take an exit. The company will be acquired by a multinational. And that's the end of that company. It doesn't it doesn't ha- go through the growth cycle that has changed dramatically in the last five years to where more and more Israeli companies are growing through multiple rounds of growth into global businesses. Many of them are have already gone or are on their way within the next three to five years to IPOs. Most of these Israeli technology companies see the U.S. market as their their main area of growth, both to get into the U.S. market and for the United States to be their platform to go global. And so that is changing the character of this into much more of a two-way relationship. And it's also a job creator in both countries, whereas We have seen the phenomenon of American companies creating jobs in Israel when they when they open R&D centers. Now, more and more Israeli companies are expanding their footprint in the United States. The state of Massachusetts did a study on this a couple of years ago and found that over 4% of the Massachusetts GDP derives from Israeli origin companies supporting something like 10,000 jobs directly and close to 30,000 jobs indirectly. Well, 4% may not sound like that much, except if you take a step back and you realize that the population of Israel is about 0.01% of the world's population or 0.1%. So it's punching something like 40 times its weight. In terms of the delivery of a job creation to a state of Massachusetts, that's not going to be true in every state of the United States. But in the major technology hubs, you'd see that story repeated over and over. And even in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see Israeli companies find a success in Louisiana and Utah and Minnesota and, and the like, that is also taking place. So American policymakers and Israeli policymakers have really taken note of this phenomenon toward the end of my time in government. And I believe it's continued in the, in the last three years the economic dialogue between the two governments has expanded. It's
0: fascinating. Would you say Dan Shapiro, being ambassador, meeting Israelis of all walks of life, is there sufficient acknowledgement by Israelis of also of American support for Israeli technology? And do you think that Israeli technology has been helpful also in term for American missile defense?
2: But there's no question that this technology benefit is flowing in both directions and the United States and our security has been dramatically improved by what we've derived. So the joint missile defense technology programs obviously are informing American missile defense programs. And in the case of Iron Dome, eventually, because of our significant investment in deployment of that system, we were able to also gain access to the technology and the U.S. Army has even purchased it for limited use. But it's not only in missile defense. There's an Israeli company at a kibbutz in the north of Israel called Plasan. The, The kibbutz is called Sasa. The company is called Plasan. that makes armor for uh, military vehicles from a particular composite material that they developed. And that armor was applied to U.S. uh, Abrams tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. And by the testimony of hundreds, if not thousands, of American service members, it saved lives in large numbers when those vehicles were hit by roadside bombs. It provided a protection that those vehicles didn't have previously. So that's a major contribution to American security. There's a lot of interchange in the cyber sector and in the AI sector that is mostly done sort of a little bit behind the scenes and maybe in the intelligence world, but that helps track the people who one wants to track terrorists smugglers, sanctions busters, and the like and Israeli companies and Israeli technologies have definitely been put to use to help America achieve its uh, security objectives as well and there are even examples of you know Israeli data storage companies that are whose technologies are being used by the u s military across far flung enterprises i mean there there 's almost no limit to the way those technologies that have been made themselves present in the U.S. private sector can also be applied to U.S. security objectives as well.
1: Can I just pick up on one thing, Dan, something Dan Shapiro said earlier about the role of Israeli companies in the U.S. economy? It's very interesting because that also is unique. As we all know, Israel has no local market to speak of, right? Eight and a half million people. That's not worth setting up shop in order to access. The talent is not low-skilled labor. So you're not setting up like a manufacturing plant in Israel because it's cheap hourly wages relative to the US. And the regional logistical play is quite limited for a number of reasons, not the least of which is Israel historically has been pretty isolated in the region. If you want access to the broader Middle East, to the broader Arab world, you don't set up shop in Israel because of the boycott and all the derivative issues. So the only reason to set up shop in Israel is to get access to high level, high skilled brains and talent that have a unique approach to problem solving. That's why they're setting up shop there. There's virtually nowhere else in the world that big multinational companies, including American multinationals, there's nowhere else in the world that they would set up shop for that reason. Israel is unique in this way. So they set up shop in Israel. So if you are Walmart and you're trying to figure out how to grow and you need technological solutions to help you grow, or if you're Coca-Cola and you're looking for solutions related to the future of water tech – Dan mentioned the water tech sector – I'm giving you real-life examples of companies that have set up shop in Israel to help these American companies be more competitive at home and in the world. So they're helping these American companies grow. Same with when the Israeli startups set up shop in the U.S. Because the market is so small in Israel, they have to at some point set up shop in the U.S. Almost all of them do. If they don't, they set up shop in London, but most of them set up shop first in New York, or in the Bay Area in California, because they want to penetrate the local market.
2: And by the way, just to point to the policymaker question, it really was something I felt as an investor. I had to kind of educate our own system, the Commerce Department and the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, not to count the maybe 300 jobs created in a R&D center set up by an American company in Tel Aviv as outsourced jobs that weren't created in, I don't know, Wichita, Kansas, because of exactly the phenomenon Dan created, that it's going to make the company more competitive globally, that in and of itself will create Jobs in the United States, but then the rebound effect of the Israeli companies coming is going to enhance that as well. You have to count differently than our agencies are accustomed to doing these tabulations.
0: All right, so let me ask both Dan's. Maybe high tech could be something that could be helpful in dealing with a vexing issue that we've all tried to deal with professionally, which is the Palestinian issue. It is said that Israel has a shortage of some 15,000 people in the high tech space, leading the country to attract foreign workers. The Palestinians, on the other hand, have a surplus of tech workers and they're right next door. Some Israeli companies like Melanox and Fredo's, which is like the Expedia of the shipping business in Israel, are trying to bridge this divide by hiring Palestinians. What are the thoughts of each of you on using high-tech collaboration in the service of Israeli-Palestinian peace and improving income levels in the West Bank? Dan Sinor?
1: I get asked a lot what I think the big threat or potential emerging obstacles to the continued growth of Israel's tech economy, what those obstacles are. People say, is it security? Is it the lack of peace? Is it all of those security geopolitical factors pale in comparison to the human capital shortage? Israel has today a shortage of talent. 2009, when Startup Nation came out, there were about 120, 130 R&D centers in Israel, multinational company-backed R&D centers. Today, that number is, as I said, in the range of about 350. So you've had, in the last decade, two and a half X increase of multinational companies coming to Israel and setting up shop. However, think about all the talent that's gobbling up, which means there's just less talent available. So that's the bad news. The good news is there are two communities where Israel contributes a disproportionately low percentage to the labor participation rate which is the Haredi community the ultra ultra orthodox community and the Israeli Arab community I'll get to the Palestinians in a second but just stick with the Haredi community and the Israeli Arab communities. Those communities participate at a disproportionately low level to the labor force generally and specifically to the high-tech scene.
0: Maybe because they're not in the army, the way you were talking about earlier, how the army has been a big boost in turbocharging the Israeli high-tech sector.
1: That's part of it and because they don't get that training that I was describing and they don't get the networks, right? There's the network effects, right? You're in the IDF. You're in your unit. You develop all these relationships. And, you know, venture capitalists, when they're backing an Israeli startup, they always poke around in the unit you served in, who knows you, who doesn't know you, what can they say about you? So you're shut out of that whole network scene. That is a problem. Yet there is the potential. There's already some technical training going on in those communities, and there's a lot more that can be done. They may not be the people starting the next Fredos you mentioned, or the next Mobileye, but they could be individuals that have high-skilled technological talent that can be working in these startups. And so there's a lot of interest right now and a number, variety of programs. Startup Nation Central has been spending a lot of, the nonprofit that I'm involved with that's based in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem is spending a lot of time figuring out how to address this human capital problem, both from a policy standpoint and from a just getting training programs, going, getting resources to the relevant training programs and breaking into those communities. That is a huge opportunity. It is crazy that Israel is outsourcing Jobs And it is. I speak to friends of mine who have Israeli startups who are hiring programmers in Ukraine, hiring talent in Belarus. I mean, this is going on. This is new. When there's all this low-hanging fruit in these communities that no one's reaching out to, this is a a natural opportunity. And I think key decision makers, policymakers, business leaders are focused on it. You have in the region a massive market in the Arab world. I mean, Arabic is one of the least used languages on the internet. Just take a step back and think about that for a moment. So obviously English is, you know, English, Mandarin, Spanish. These languages are widely used on the internet. Arabic is, relative to other languages, is quite low. Part of the reason is because e-commerce in the Arab world is very underdeveloped for a number of reasons. So there's a big tech play to improve and modernize the tech market in the Arab world. So what some Israeli venture capitalists have figured out is, wait a minute, if we partner with tech talent and people who are entrepreneurial-minded that are Arabic-speaking and from an Arabic culture, they're right here, we can turbocharge their businesses in a way that they couldn't do on their own or they couldn't do elsewhere. They can identify these huge opportunities because of what's going on in the region, and they have geographic proximity, obviously. And there's a real partnership opportunity here. So there have been a few funds that have been set up to just tackle this opportunity specifically, both among Israeli Arabs and Palestinians. So I think there's the human capital challenge. There's the target, the broader Arab world challenge. There's stuff going on. It's not as advanced as it should be, but it's come a long way from, I'd say, 10 years ago when we were writing about Startup Nation. We're starting to see more and more of this when we're just poking around in the community there.
0: So what do you think, Dan Shapiro? As Dan Senor just said, this isn't just altruism here. This is a way of Israel and Arabs working side by side to really get into the Middle Eastern market in a wider sense.
2: So it's clearly got to be business-driven. It's clearly going to have to be seen as a win-win proposition. And I think the companies you mentioned have determined, both because of the reasons Dan described and simply because of the talent that's available to them, that this is a win-win proposition. And they don't make those investments just to try to improve relationships between Israelis and Palestinians. That said, it's also an, an opportunity. I think it's a real opportunity. I think it has not yet matured into what I would call a major opportunity, but it's something that could, over time, if it's properly developed and nurtured actually play a significant role in changing the dynamic of the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians. There is this very talented Palestinian technology sector. I would say, having spent some time with people in that community, it's probably in some ways the least politicized part of the Palestinian population, or at least the most open to engagement with Israelis, you know, the kinds of activities that are sometimes tarred in the Palestinian discourse as normalization. This doesn't bother the programmers who are sitting in Rawabi and sitting in Ramallah and find that they have skills that are marketable to either Israeli companies or maybe it's to U.S. multinationals that are working with them out of their Tel Aviv pubs. So it's really something to build on. It is a win-win. Obviously, it improves Palestinian economic conditions. It helps bring Israeli technology into places it might not otherwise reach. It builds personal relationships that can provide some ballast uh, through hard political times. We should also be realistic. It doesn't replace the tough political decisions that leaders are going to have to make. Uh, Leaders that you like, the ones you wrote about uh, in your latest book, David, that doesn't replace the hard political decisions of territory and settlements and occupation and borders and security and terror and Jerusalem and refugees. Those are still going to have to be dealt with by bold political leaders willing to tell some hard truth to their own people, willing to change some of their narratives, willing to make painful concessions, but hopefully do that in a way that's done through building trust and taking some calculated risk and with American and perhaps Arab and European support, those are all going to be necessary. But there's no question that where there is a base of win-win economic and technology partnership, it gives those political leaders a, a firmer ground on which to stand when they try to make those kinds of decisions. Well,
0: this has been fascinating. I just want to really thank both of you for taking the time. Dan Senor in New York, Dan Shapiro in Tel Aviv. I think you really shed light on this really fast-evolving movement of cooperation between the United States and Israel, and hopefully between Israel and Arabs, between Israelis and Israeli Arabs, Palestinians, maybe Gulf Arabs as well. This is really a new X factor, and I hope our listeners really heed what has been said here in this podcast and think going forward about the potential of high-tech cooperation this is a very exciting area and people should stay tuned so dan and dan thank you both very much
2: thanks david thanks dan pleasure to do it
0: This is the end of our 10th episode, and I just want to thank everyone for listening. For those of you who heard just this podcast, I'd hope you go back to the beginning and hear all of them and be with us in the future as we're going to be doing season two shortly. So thank you all very, very much. I would urge you also to look at the book that Dennis Ross and I wrote, called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. A lot of declassified material coming both from State Department archives and the archives of Israel. Please go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell your friends. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Basha Rosenbaum, Richard Myron, and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies. Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive on Capitol Hill, Scott Boxer, Rena Wasserstein, and David Patkin.